Hello and welcome to Toast and Topics. It's Sunday, August 27th. I'm Ben. And I'm Sachin. So thanks again for joining us. And we want to thank one of our audience members for suggesting this week's topic. You know who you are. Um, to everyone else, if there is a topic that you want to hear us talk about, again, please do let us know. And this is proof that we will listen. I echo that. Please submit your recommendations. And we're excited to see what you guys come up with. So pivoting to the topic that we have for this week, Japan has been in focus recently for changes in its monetary policy. And we wanted to take this episode to look more into Japan's struggles with low inflation and even deflation historically. Uh, we wanted to also better understand their unconventional monetary policy of yield curve control. And then finally, we're going to look at the longer term implications of recent changes in this policy. Yeah, so Japan is a country that for almost the past 10 years has been in the news for its persistently low inflation. And that's a problem that most countries don't have. So I think it's worth spending a few minutes understanding the history behind this. And as usual, I think you should start, it, start us off then. Yeah, of course. So Japan's economic story is actually quite interesting because this issue of low inflation is really something that has only affected the Japanese economy over the past 20 to 30 years. Um, going back to the late 1940s and 1950s, after the destruction of World War II, Japan experienced truly rapid economic growth as it rebuilt its industries. In fact, Japan contributed a remarkable 16% to global GDP growth from 1960 to 1990. And this was partly due to the rapid industrialization uh, that the country saw during this period. For example, it developed one of the world's largest automobile manufacturing industries and also became an electronics powerhouse. As a result of all of that, by the mid-1990s, Japan's gross domestic product was some two-thirds that of the United States. And at the time, there was much talk of Japan surpassing, or even having already surpassed, the United States as the world's preeminent economic power. Um, but these high real growth rates that Japan achieved over these four decades ultimately became built into asset prices. And towards the end of the 1980s, these prices were rising to unsustainable levels, to the point that the country actually was dealing with an inflation problem. Ultimately, investors eventually came to believe that the growth assumptions that were being built into these asset prices were unrealistic. And once this was realized, there was a sharp collapse in asset prices toward the end of the 1980s. In other words, Japan's bubble popped. Between 1989 and 2003, the Nikkei 225 stock market index fell by nearly 80% from 39,000 points to 8,000 points. In short, Japan's economic boom was at an end, and the country was now reckoning with a significant decline in price levels. And during this time period, how did the Bank of Japan react? Yeah, the conventional monetary policy response during a downturn of that magnitude is to cut interest rates to stimulate economic activity. And the Bank of Japan cut interest rates from 8% in 1990 to 1% in 1996. By February of 2001, in fact, rates were as low as 0%, which is 
otherwise known as the lower bound. Yeah, and for our audience who may not be as familiar, interest rates essentially have a floor at 0%, which is otherwise known as the zero lower bound. And this is because once a central bank cuts to that level, it's hard for them to cut any further. Once interest rates hit zero, a central bank generally has two options. One is quantitative easing, which is purchasing assets from the private sector, um, usually in the form of government bonds, which increases the money supply and stimulates asset prices. The other is pivoting to negative rates. And conceptually, that means that banks effectively penalize you for saving money with them. And the goal of this is to encourage spending. Now, the biggest limitation is that banks ultimately have very little control over consumer behavior at this point. Ultimately, they can't really convince you to borrow and spend beyond a certain point. And some people may disagree with me, but you know, there's only so many clothes that you can buy. <laughs> and so I think that the Bank of Japan and Japan more broadly was dealing with this exact problem. The Bank of Japan did try to embark on quantitative easing and also shifted to negative rates for a long time. Normally, these kinds of policies increase the supply of money and lead to heightened price levels. But the bursting of Japan's housing bubble had changed the economy in some fundamental ways. First, firms, rather than investing in new enterprises, were more focused on paying down the debts that they had accumulated in the 1970s and the 1980s. And this limited new demand and spending in Japan. More than that, Japan was also going through a major demographic transition at this point. Its working age population had peaked in the 1990s and has since declined, which presented an additional obstacle to greater household spending. As a result of this, the economy fell into deflation in the late 1990s in the sense that it was seeing sustained decreases in price levels. And this persisted for about 15 years, despite the best efforts of the Bank of Japan to counteract this. It's also worth spending a few minutes talking about the risks of deflation. There was a saying which went something like, inflation is the grease that keeps the economy going. And I'm sorry to whoever said this quote if I got it completely wrong. Um, but while we often talk about inflation in a negative light, I think it's important to also acknowledge that having some amount of controlled inflation is actually an important part of any macroeconomy. Yes, just to reiterate that quote, inflation is in fact the grease that keeps the economy going in modest quantities. Uh, there are three main reasons why it's important for an economy to have some inflation. The first is that when people expect that prices are rising, uh, they tend to spend more today in order to avoid spending more in the future. And this cycle of spending helps to fuel growth in an economy. Uh, second, wages also need to rise to keep pace with the heightened cost of living associated with inflation. And higher wages over time are necessary for firms to attract the best talent and also to give people a feeling that they are attaining a higher standard of living. Finally, some modest level of inflation gives central banks room to cut rates if needed. This is because higher inflation necessitates higher rates, which means that monetary policy can be eased if something like a recession hits. Uh, and conversely, deflation is bad for the exact reasons that inflation in modest quantities is good. Uh, for example, people expect that prices are going to go down in the future. They'll put off spending today. I mean, suppose that a refrigerator costs 
$1,000 today, but you think that in six months, it's going to be 2% cheaper. You would probably wait six months to buy it at the cheaper price, right? And this can also create a negative feedback loop because if consumers are postponing their spending until a later date, that's going to mean that businesses in the present need to lay off workers to cope with that lower demand, which can further depress consumer spending. All of that means that there are some benefits to having a small amount of inflation. And as a result of that, the Bank of Japan maintains a 2% inflation target, like that of many other central banks. However, as we've already indicated, it has very rarely met that target. It's generally been underneath it. Uh, and so given Japan's long-time struggle with deflation, its central bank has had to resort to some unconventional methods of monetary policy to stimulate the economy. One of these is yield curve control. So, Sachin, you are much more well-versed in bond markets, given that you live and breathe them at work. So why don't you explain that a bit more? Yeah, will do. So to start, the yield curve simply shows interest rates at different maturities. And the yield curve matters because interest rates on most, if not all, forms of borrowing are based on the yields of government bonds at different maturities. So for example, if you were to take out a 30-year mortgage, the interest that you pay would be built on the interest rates on 30-year government bonds. And as those rise, you'll end up paying more. As the name suggests, yield curve control was a push by the BOJ to control the shape of its yield curve by essentially setting fixed bands of acceptable yields for short and medium term rates. So in September 2016, they introduced this policy by setting the 10 year Japanese government bond target at 0%. And the reason why they did this was because they had reached the limit of quantitative easing and were still below their 2% target for inflation. Yield curve control allowed the BOJ greater flexibility to buy as much as needed to achieve its 0% yield target. Um, and they allowed for some fluctuations of up to plus and minus 0.1% on each side of zero when the policy started. And this band has widened over the years, getting to about 0.5% on each side at the end of 2022. Okay, thanks for that interesting breakdown. But what have the effects of this policy been for Japan's economy? So yield curve control has succeeded in keeping Japanese bond yields low for six years now. Um, and the BOJ has been successful at maintaining the rates that they had outlined. Um, but the problem is that yield curve control has not really improved growth, spending and inflation in the way that they had envisioned. You know, during this time period from when the policy started, inflation was pretty much stagnant and has only recently started to pick up uh, in line with inflation in other developed countries. Um, and for context, Japan reported about 3.2% annual inflation in July of 2023, which is for the first time above target in, in a long time. Um, in the past two years, with nearly all central banks raising rates, the BOJ has been forced to continue ramping up purchases of government bonds to maintain this policy. And that's also caused dislocations in the Japanese government bond market. The BOJ, for context, owns about 50% of the long-term bonds in the country right now, and that's over 535 trillion yen, or almost 4 trillion US dollars. That's a really big number. Um, and 
continued forced buying from the BOJ has exposed them to potential losses on their asset portfolio by buying bonds in a rising rate environment. And that's optically made the policy seem unsustainable. Yeah, I think that captures the dilemma that the Bank of Japan faces quite well. This yield curve control policy has undeniably put some strain on the bank and also seems to be running counter to where Japan's economy is with its currently somewhat high levels of inflation. This makes it unsurprising that about a month ago in July, the Bank of Japan took markets actually somewhat by surprise by announcing an unexpected change to its yield curve control policy by raising the cap on its 10-year government bond yields from 0.5% to 1%. This is a big change that effectively makes the yield curve control policy less rigid. It can be interpreted as the start of them phasing it out. Uh, And this change gives the Bank of Japan some additional options. For example, if inflation expectations actually do rise, then they can more easily phase out this extremely loose monetary policy. But if inflation actually goes down after this current bout of high inflation that Japan is dealing with, the Bank of Japan can simply just resume the yield curve control policy. Uh, There are some risks, however, associated with allowing bond yields to climb. The key one is debt. Over the past 30 years, Japan's attempts to stimulate its economy have led to its government accumulating debt that is now 173% of GDP. That is the highest of any rich world country. Um, And so allowing yields to climb would basically increase the government's payments on that debt, which already account for about 8% of Japan's total national budget. So you can imagine that if Japan had to pay more on its debt, um, this could squeeze out other forms of spending, for example, on education or defense. Um, In addition to that, allowing yields to climb will diminish the value of the Bank of Japan's existing bond holdings, which could carry some economic risks um, of their own. That all makes sense. So to summarize, this is a phase out of a policy that was once appropriate, but now needs to be adapted to the current environment. Ultimately, I think that this seems like a win for the longer term credibility of the Bank of Japan. But by phasing out the policy and allowing yields to climb further, um, it is going to carry some fiscal risks of its own. I think that's right, Sachin. Great. Well, thank you all for joining us for this week's episode of Toast and Topics. One important note is that you'll hear from us again in three weeks time because Ben is going to be taking a short end of summer vacation off to Africa. Um, Ben, I am incredibly jealous of this, but I'm really excited for you um, and to hear about your adventure. And for our audience, you can look forward to a special edition of Toast and Topics when Ben returns, where we'll hear about all of his observations from Africa. So until then. Thank you, Sachin. And I'm looking forward to diving into the economy of Tanzania a bit more once I'm back in three weeks. Thanks for listening to Toast and Topics. If you like what you heard, follow us on Spotify or on Instagram at Toast and Topics. If there's a topic you'd like to hear us discuss next, fill out the Google form in the podcast description. Until next time.